0: Please turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 5 and 6. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this magnificent passage. This concept of adoption is so magnificent that we could study this for weeks and not scratch the surface. Father, burden our hearts and our tongues and our our minds with with praise to you as we consider what you have done for us, out of your good pleasure, things that you, you did not have to do. And Father, if there be any here who don't know you this morning, we ask that they would see how wonderful of a father you are to your children and that they would desire to know you. Father, grant me wisdom and understanding as I preach your word. Grant me clarity. Lead and and guide my my every thought and my every word that you would be glorified this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So far, Paul has touched on several elements of salvation. We have what is called the the ordo salutis, or the the order of salvation. And and this is the, the logical sequences that happen in our salvation. And Paul has touched on several of these so far. First, we looked at election. This idea of God sovereignly choosing people to save before the foundation of the world. And last week we we talked about justification, the fact that God takes people who are unholy, morally corrupt, and guilty before him, and he makes them holy and blameless. And I argue that this refers to justification, the the act whereby God legally takes away our guilt and places it upon Christ and legally takes the righteousness of Christ and gives it to us. Thus God looks at us and and sees the the moral perfection or holiness of His Son and we say, Wow, surely this must be the, the height of what God has Done for us. Surely, Paul could not stimulate us to praise with anything more than that. But theologians would argue that Paul actually takes it one step higher. And so now Paul gets into the great doctrine of adoption. And what do we mean by adoption? Grudem defines adoption as an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. He calls us his children. And we can call him father. This is adoption. And if you are like me, this is something that you've not studied for a good part of your Christian life. And perhaps you you have gone many, many years as a Christian and never really understood the magnitude of the fact that we are adopted by God. And we say, yes, I know, it's, it's a wonderful thing that I can call God Father. But is it really a big deal? I mean, justification is obviously a big deal because this is the act whereby God declares us righteous, guiltless in His eyes. But, but adoption is adoption really a big deal? John Frame says adoption carries us beyond justification. Justification is amazing and wonderful, but adoption is the apex, the high point in our relationship with God. Does that sound strange to you? Frame also notes that we tend to focus on justification because of the importance of that doctrine in the Reformation and on sanctification because it describes the progress of salvation in our hearts in a practical way day by day. But adoption, belonging to God's family, is the height of our privilege as God's people. God justified us. He declared us righteous. But He could have done that without taking our relationship to Him any farther. Do do we realize that? William Perkins, the Puritan, noted that believers should esteem adoption as God's children to be greater than being the child or heir of any earthly prince. And he notes that at earthly preferments, men will stand amazed. But seldom shall you find a man that is ravished with joy in this, that he is a child of God. So I have a couple of questions for you. A few questions. First, do we understand adoption? J.I. Packer said something along the lines of, to the extent we understand adoption and its implications, to that extent we understand the Christian faith. And do we esteem adoption as the high point in our relationship with God? Are we ravished or overwhelmed with, with joy and filled with praise because of the fact that we are the children of God? You see, dear friends, we have to have a proper view of adoption to understand what Paul is communicating in this text. Paul Paul's not praising God for, for adoption as a mere formality of Christian duty. Just crossing all of his T's and dotting all of his I's. No. Paul is praising God for this because he is overwhelmed with, with, with praise to God for, for his adoption. So this, this overwhelmed heart flows forth through his pen. Remember that verses 3 through 14 in the Greek is one long sentence of praise. And Paul now brings in the glorious doctrine of adoption. And Paul tells us several things about adoption to draw our hearts to praise. He he tells us God's motive for adoption. He predestined us in love, it was his love that, that motivated him. And he tells us about God's choice. In adoption, he said he predestined according to the good pleasure of his will. He did it, it was his choice. And he tells us that adoption is only possible through Christ. And he tells us the ultimate purpose, which is to the praise of God's glorious grace. But before we can get into these things, we must understand thoroughly. What Paul means by adoption. Because you see, when Paul uses this word, he has a theology of adoption in his mind. And if we don't understand what he understands by adoption, then we don't understand why he's trying to draw our hearts to praise God. Let me give you an illustration using adoption in our culture. Let's say you adopt a five-year-old child. You sign the papers. This child is legally yours. And you desire to to stimulate a heart of gratitude inside of this child. You want this child to be grateful for what you have done. So you you tell this five-year-old child, Don't you know that I chose to adopt you in love? What is that child going to do? He's going to give you a blank stare. Why? He does not understand the implications of adoption. But what happens once this child grows older and gets married and has children of his own? And he begins to understand something of what a parent actually does for a child. He begins to understand something of what was done for him. How you legally became his parent when you did not have to do it. And how you gave him the good family name when you did not have to do it. How you provided him with protection and food and shelter and transportation when you did not have to do it. And how you brought him into a loving family with loving siblings when he did not have to do it. And when this child went down bad paths, you didn't just let him do that and go to jail. But you corrected him. You disciplined him in love, even though you did not have to do it. And not only that, but because you gave him the family name, he is now entitled to the family inheritance. And you did not have to do it. And in light of all of that, this child begins to understand something of the perilous condition of those who grow up without a father. He he sees what, what that path usually leads to, statistically speaking. And so, after realizing what was done for him through adoption, he asks you, "Why would you do this for me?" There there are thousands of orphans in the world. Why would you take me into your home and do these things for me? And then you say to him, I didn't have to adopt anyone, but I chose to. And I could have adopted any other orphan in the world, but I chose you because of my love. Now that stimulates that man's heart. To praise, because he now experientially understands the implications of being adopted. Likewise, for us, unless we understand what this spiritual adoption is and the implications of what God has done for us through adoption, telling us why God has adopted us will not move our hearts to praise. So today we are going to just consider this this great doctrine of adoption. As we've already said, this is an act whereby God brings us into his family. Grudem points out that the biblical teaching on adoption focuses much more on the personal relationships that salvation gives us with God and with his people. Frame points out that adoption is the foundation of all our relationships with God and with one another. God's name is our family name, the name by which we will be known throughout all eternity. And what is the meaning of this Greek word, adoption? Well, the Greek word means a legal proceeding that creates a parent-child relation between persons not related by blood. And listen to this, with the adopted child being entitled to all privileges, belonging to a natural child, including the right to inherit. That is our relationship with God. We are not his blood child, as as it were, his natural child, but he has brought us into his family in a legal sense and has given us the right to inherit. And where does Scripture speak of this? Well, our text today tells us that we have been predestined to adoption as sons. And we could go over to Galatians 4 where Paul says, "...but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons." This is an important element in Paul's gospel. So he says in Romans 8, You, you did not receive the, the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And we can go to John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's a presupposition here. The fact that there is an emphasis placed upon those who are redeemed becoming children of God through adoption, this means that those who do not belong to Christ are not his children. Different simply being born, even into a Christian home, does not make you a child of God. This is Paul's theology. And this is one of the amazing things about adoption. Consider what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Now listen to this. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul says, by nature, we are children of wrath, sons of disobedience. It doesn't matter if you have Abraham as your father. Children of wrath, sons of disobedience. We are born children of wrath, and yet God cleanses us and adopts us as His children. Essen points out that in Greco Roman, Greco Roman adoptees were often members of the father's extended family. But in the case of believers, God has taken the most distant foreigners to be his kin for inheritance of his whole estate. Not the deserving or good, not many well-born, powerful or wise, but those who are by nature not of his kin at all, but children of wrath. That is who he adopted. But here, here's where it gets even more amazing. Because what does he adopt us to? Does he adopt us into some second-rate family? Bob points out, God did not place these new sons into a subordinate, inferior family. He appoints them all to become co-heirs with his natural-born son. These stupendous acts of divine grace have, have no parallel in, in Greco-Roman society. It surpasses even the unthinkable idea of the Roman emperor adopting a slave from the most barbaric hinterlands to be the next emperor. It is no wonder Paul exalts and praise to the glory of his grace. And we lose something of this in our culture. Remember that Paul is writing in, to, to the saints in Ephesus. Some of them were possibly slaves or, or, or were once slaves. And now here's what they're being told. You as a slave who, who in the, the Greco-Roman world is not even considered a legal person. But, but you who are a slave are being brought into the royal family to be a co-ruler with Christ. This is amazing. Thomas Watson said, it were much for God to take a cloud of dust and make it a star. It is much more for God to take a piece of clay and sin and adopt it for his heir. Dear friends, we were enemies of God. Not friendlies. At war with him. And he sovereignly saved us and brought us into his family. I want you to imagine a king. And some of the people in his kingdom begin to rebel against him. And they commit high treason. They deserve death. And this king is an absolute sovereign. He can do whatever he desires. And he has this rebellious, treasonous group of people who deserve death. But he says, I have compassion on them. So he goes into the enemy's camp and he sovereignly removes some of them. And he says, because of my compassion, I'm sovereignly removing you from the enemy's camp. And he, he brings them into His castle. And he says, you are pardoned. You were a traitor. You committed treason. You you are worthy of death. But I am now pardoning you. You are forgiven. And not only that, but, but I'm legally adopting you. You are now my child. You now have the royal name. And not only that, but here, sit on the throne and co-rule with my natural-born son. That is what God has done for us through adoption. And what is the nature of adoption? Do we become sons of God just as Jesus is the Son of God? Well, we have to understand here that adoption does not change our nature. It changes our standing with God. So regeneration is what changes our, our nature. We are born again. We get a new nature. And it allows us to, to believe in Jesus for salvation and to repent of our sins. And once we do that, we are justified, declared righteous in God's eyes. We, we have a, a right standing with God. And then through adoption, our standing is that of His kin, His sons, His, his children. And this is important to note because there is a distinction between us and Christ. In John twenty, seventeen, Jesus said, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And as we pointed out before, this is showing the humanity of Jesus. He's my God. He, he's my Father, rather. But, but it's also showing his deity. And he does this, but, but he, he says it in such a way to, to show that it's not exactly the same. He does not say, our God and Father. No, there's a distinction. He's my God and Father, and he's your God and Father in a different way. Why? Because Jesus, by nature, is the second member of the Trinity. He is the Son of God by by nature, and we cannot imitate Jesus in that. So even though Jesus is, is called our brother, it is not because our nature changes to become like his. It is because we are adopted. So as children, as Christians rather, though by nature we are not God's children, We are, in a sense, legally brought into his family as children and receive the privilege of inheritance in a very real way. Dear friends, let us ponder the magnitude of this. Do you understand how this takes us beyond justification? Think again of the analogy of the king. If the king wanted to show his compassion and his grace and mercy, he could have just told those people, they've committed treason, I forgive them, I pardon them, but I leave them outside. But God doesn't do that. He brings us into his family and says, you are now my sons and my daughters. This goes beyond mere justification. Beyond justification. And this is not insignificant. Why? Because being the child of a king brings with it privileges and an inheritance. And this thought simply overwhelmed the Apostle John. So he said, behold, what manner of love has, the Father has bestowed upon us that, that, the, that, that we should be called children of God. What, what manner of love is that? John understood the privileges. So so what are the the privileges we we gain through adoption? And as we consider this, let us just consider what what Paul does. Sometimes Paul says very hard things. We're talking about election, predestination. He's referring to God's sovereignty. and, and, And in Romans 9, what does he do? He just lets us have it. Who are you? to answer back to God. Bottom line. But, but sometimes he, he, he sweetly woos us with what he is saying. And this is what he is doing here by using this word, adoption. So we can't even scratch the surface today of, of, of the benefits of adoption, but, but we're going to start. And so today we're going to just begin with the fact that our relationship with God is now different. We are no longer sons of disobedience. We are no longer children of wrath. Sons of Satan, as it were. But God is now our Father. Now, for some people, that doesn't sound very appealing. Merton Lloyd-Jones pointed out that When many people hear the name Father, the only thing they can think of is a drunken beast. Because many fathers have done what? They've given the name a terrible meaning. So so that some people cannot even hear the word Father without negative association. And we, we think of a father and we say, I don't want one of those in my life. A father is a negative thing. But, dear friends, God is a good father, a perfect father, a loving father. Consider the, the character of God. We talked last week about his, his holiness, his, his moral purity, his uncompromising righteousness. Now apply, that, apply those characteristics to his fatherhood. That is the type of father he is. A perfectly righteous father who, who never provokes his children to wrath. James tells us he never tempts anyone to sin and he's never tempted to sin. He's the source of all good. All good things and all perfect things come from him and he never changes because he is immutable. James tells us with God there is no variation or shadow of turning. This means what? He's not like an earthly father who one moment... You please him by doing this, and the next moment, that displeases him. He's consistent. He he never changes. He, He never changes his standards. And he is not a hypocritical father who leads us to sin by example, but then tells us, do as I say and not as I do. He is not a father who forsakes and abandons his children. He is not a father who refuses to discipline and correct his children. He is a good father who loves his children and provides for them perfectly. Consider Matthew chapter 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Consider what's being said here. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Something like a small bird. He feeds. He cares for. God has provided them with food and ways to to get shelter and warmth. And Jesus says this, Are you of not more value than they? In other words, if I do this for creatures that we consider to be insignificant, how much more will I take care of my own children? And then he gives us another example of this in, in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Which one of you, if, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts To your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? You say, God, it's not a good father. I don't like the word father. But even you, who are flesh and blood, don't give harmful things to your children when they ask you for something good. And if you, with a fallen nature, though change, but but still remaining sin, if you then can give good gifts to your children when they ask you, how much more will your father do this for you? Do do you you see the privilege here of being God's child? Look at the birds. Look look at all the animals around you. They have food and clothing. Your father cares for them, and he loves you much, much more more. Why be anxious? Why be in distress? Friends, this is the the privilege of God being our Father. And listen, this is not just in some formalized way. No. But our relationship with God is actually intimate. There is familiarity in our relationship. Paul tells us in Romans, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of of God. For you do not receive the, the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What is this? It's an informal Aramaic term for Father. Some people say it, it could be translated as daddy or papa. Some say that's a little bit too irreverent. So we should say dear father. But, but the term speaks of intimacy, familiarity, tenderness, dependence, affection. This is the word that, that Christ uses when he's in agony in the garden. He, he is about to be crucified. And so he's he's in agony in the garden and he goes and he cries to his father and he says, Abba, Father, if there's any other way for this to pass, may it be so, but not my will, but yours be done. This time of prayer where he's sweating drops of blood, he's in such agony. This time of of great distress for, for Christ as a man because as a man for the first time as as god in heaven he knew what it would take to be the sin bearer but now he actually has human flesh and so as he's considering what it's going to be what's it going to take to be the sin bearer he he begins to sweat drops of blood his body is in so much agony and in his agony he he wants his father so he he calls to his father and he uses this term abba father and Paul tells us, we have the same relationship. We cry, "Abba, Father." Not a distant king, dear friends, but a loving father. This is the Christian's relationship with God. Think of the child of a president or a king, how he runs past security. And jumps into his father's lap. And asks him for something totally stupid. And he doesn't get in trouble for it. This is our relationship. Father. Abba, Father. Packer notes that those who are Christ, the Holy God is his loving father. They belong to His family. They may approach Him without fear and always be sure of His fatherly concern and care. This is how we can now approach God. Do we realize this? The only way, the only reason Jesus taught us to pray our Father is not because of salvation, but because of adoption. Calling God our Father is not the privilege of justification. It is the privilege of adoption. This is real. When we call God Father, we're not just using a formality. This is real. But should we fear God at the same time? Doesn't Scripture command us to fear God? Yes, the child of a king is still reverent and respectful of his father, And and there's a very real sense of fear, but, but it does not remove the intimacy. But believers don't need to fear God in the sense that we would fear approaching a murderous dictator. That's not our relationship with him. Luther distinguished between what he called a servile fear and a filial fear. Servile fear is the fear of a slave that his master is going to beat him and destroy him and pour out his wrath upon him at any moment. Believers need not fear God that way. If you don't know Christ, you need to fear that he may pour out his wrath upon you at any given moment. But as a son or daughter, we are no longer in danger of his wrath. But, but our fear of him is a filial fear. It is the fear of a child who fears disobeying, dishonoring his, his father and his mother. He does not want to disappoint them. He's not, he's not fearful that they're going to uh, abuse him and, and, and beat him to death. But he doesn't want to disappoint them because he loves them. He, he respects them. He honors them. Sproul notes that we are invited to call him Abba, Father, and to have the personal intimacy promised to to us, but still, we are not to be flippant with God. We are always to maintain a healthy respect and adoration for him. So so yes, we, we fear God as a child fears a good and gracious father. And even in that fear, there is a great intimacy Familiarity, affection, and love to our relationship. Dear friends, truly consider the significance of this. The God who created the universe, who spoke the world into existence. The God whom we know to be absolutely sovereign. Absolutely powerful. The God who looks at everything in this world and says, that is mine. The God who is omnipresent. He is everywhere. There is nowhere you can escape his presence. The God who came down on Sinai. And the mountain quaked and there was smoke and the people said, you talk to God, Moses, not us, lest we die. This is terrifying. This God has drawn near to us. This, dear friends, is privilege. I might not have white privilege, but I have God privilege. This is real, dear friends. This is absolutely real. Do you realize that when, when you face situations in your life and you say, I, I just wish I knew somebody who had connections. And God, your very Father, intimate Father, says, I own a cattle on a thousand hills. Everything in this world belongs to me. This very God who has drawn near to us who loves us so much that that before the foundation of the world, he chose to save us and chose to adopt us, says, look at the birds. I care for them. I, I, I provide for their needs. And I love you much more. I mean, come on now. You see those movies where you have an orphan who's adopted by some wealthy billionaire and it just warms your heart. And you think to yourself, wouldn't that be awesome if I found out that my father was a king somewhere and then I could just go into his kingdom and, and be part of royalty and, and, actually, and, and receive all of the, the benefits of royalty? And that has happened to us to an infinite degree. Much more than an earthly king. perhaps some of you, dear friends, you've never had a father around. Something you always desired. Guess what? Now you have a father who it is impossible to escape his presence. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. And not only that, but he will never leave you nor forsake you. And, and perhaps some of you had a father around, but but he was evil. He was wicked. He led you into sin. But now, dear friends, you have a father who is perfectly holy and righteous, and he will never compromise his morals. Perhaps some of you had a father who let you go astray. He wouldn't discipline. He wouldn't correct. And you think back with remorse how your father just let you do things that destroyed you. You now have a father who loves you so much that he chastises you and he disciplines you. A loving father who, who does not let his children go astray because he says, Whom I love, I chasten. I chastise them. I won't let you go astray. You have a father who, who does that for you. Perhaps some of you had a father who didn't seem to love you. And you always wonder to yourself, what can I do to win the affection or the love of my father? But guess what difference? We now have a father who manifested his love for us by adopting us before we even existed before the foundation of the world. And not only that, but but a man, a father whom we are told that we can never escape his love. That there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And I'm not saying that all fathers are bad. So perhaps you had a great father. A godly man who cared for you greatly. Well, dear friend, multiply that times infinity. And that's the Father that you now have. Take, take joy in this, dear friend, that we are, are children of God. Consider again what John said Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. John is astonished, he, he's overwhelmed. The fact that we are children of God overwhelms him. This word, the same Greek word, is used in the Gospel of Matthew. The disciples are in a boat, and they think it's going to sink because the wind and the waves are mighty. And this man, Jesus, he rises up and he tells the wind and the waves to stop. And immediately it obeys. And these men marveled. And what did they say? What sort of man is this? That even the wind and the waves obey. Can can you imagine that? I mean, just put yourself in that situation. These waves that are going to cause the boat to sink, and a man says, stop, and the waves obey, and the wind stops. And you say, what on earth kind of man is this? This is the same word John is using. What kind of love is this? That we should be called children of God. I've never seen such a love. He's overwhelmed. He's flabbergasted. But that is the marvel, the astonishment, the amazement, the wonder that we should have when we consider the fact that we are children of God. Lord willing, you're beginning to understand something of why Paul is praising God for adoption. Dear friends, when you leave here today and you pray and you you, you say, Our Father... Let that not just be a formality to you. Let let it be like you actually calling up your your earthly father and saying, Father, you're saying it in an intimate way. This is is my father. That is the meaning of this term. It is not meant to be a mere formality, but, but a term of endearment even. And perhaps there are some here today You don't know Christ. And you desire a father like that. You look at this God of the Bible and says, How do I become a son of that type of father? I want a father like that. Dear friends, that is the appropriate reaction. Because who would not want to be the son of a king? Who would not want to be In the inheritance left by by the royal king. But how then do we receive adoption? You say, sign me up. How do I get adopted by that man? Paul tells us in Galatians, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. That is the only way. Not being born into a Christian home. Not having certain kinds of parents. But in Christ, through faith, there is no other way. Trusting in Jesus for salvation is the only way to become a son of God. God is Father only to those in Christ. Different trust in Him today. You, you can see that he is, a, he is a good God. He is a, a good Father. And, and why would you want to re- remain in a negative relationship with this good Father if you do not belong to Christ today? You are a son of disobedience. You are a, a child of wrath. You are under His wrath. And if you die in your sins, He will punish you for it. But He offers you terms of peace Today, He says to you, this very day, while you are still living, I am offering you grace and mercy. Just believe in my Son, Jesus Christ, and turn from your sins, and I will wipe away your sins. I will declare you innocent in my eyes by by pouring out wrath on my Son in your place, and I will declare you righteous with the righteousness of my Son. And not only that... But I will adopt you into my royal family and make you a part of the inheritance. What a gracious Father God is. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege to call you Father. What a magnificent thing that should overwhelm us, that should delight us, that that should cause us to be overwhelmed with joy and praise to you like the Apostle Paul who, who just could not praise you enough. As we see in his writings over and over again, he's overwhelmed with your grace and your mercy towards him. May we truly be able to say with, with the Apostle John, what, what manner of love is this? What kind of love is this that, that you have allowed us to call you Father? And you've made us children whom you care for and love and guide and correct And dear Lord, may those who don't know you this day trust in Jesus for salvation that they too could become your children. And oh Lord, help us to live as your children. No longer living as sons of disobedience, but as children of a righteous and holy God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.